The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, Dr. Alex Bitzer. Dr. Bitzer is with us today to discuss MDI and throwing athletes. Going forward to treatment, I always read a lot of the case that we're having, but when I read, it's like you really want to do an aggressive PT program for this. All of the conditions you were talking about, scapula stabilization, strengthening the cuff, et cetera. And my experience with this is that you really have to have the patients stop throwing for a while or stop doing what they're doing for a while for PT to be effective. And when you have the athlete and the parent both motivated to get back as soon as possible, and I'm the next whoever going to the Major League Baseball, you get into that issue too. So I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit, your treatment and obstacles you find along the way when you're treating, that sort of thing. You hit it right on the head there, Sam. It's tough to counsel these patients when you are recommending a long rehab process that entails not doing a lot of the things that the patient has been doing in order to participate in sport. And so it's a hard sell many times, mainly because A, you're taking them out of what they're enjoying doing, whether it's they're actually it's their livelihood if they're a professional athlete or it's just recreational. So that's number one. And then number two, it's also getting buy-in from the patient that physical therapy is going to be enough to get them over the hump and get them back to sport. Because many times, it's not just patients looking for a quick fix, although there is an element to that sometimes. It becomes a question as to, well, I have a friend that got their shoulder fixed and they got back to sport. Why can't I just do that and get back, et cetera? So it is first first and foremost getting buy-in from both the patient and, you know, if, again, if they're a young athlete and they're there with their parent, also from the parents. Like you mentioned, physical therapy for MDI is the staple. And really, you want to try to maximize non-operative therapy as much as you can with these patients. And one way to always, you know, sell it is to say, well, we're going to spare you from having to undergo surgery. It's going to require you to rehab your shoulder a lot afterwards anyways. So we might be able to not even have you have surgery, do the same type of rehab, and then get you over the hump and back to a cycle that is a positive one where you're making your shoulder strong, it's hurting less, and therefore you're able to make it further stronger, it's going to hurt less, and you keep on progressing sort of in a positive path. So most patients should do at least six months of physical therapy and good physical therapy, first and foremost, focusing on scapula uh, training and improving any dyskinesis that's present. Again, focusing on a retraction of the scapula as a lot of these patients will have protracted scapula. Importantly, bracing and taping can be helpful for this, both from an actually positioning the scapula in an appropriate position, but also for giving some feedback to the patient as to where they need to dynamically place their scapula in space as they're using their shoulders. That's first and foremost. Second thing is to decrease inflammation. Before trying to strengthen the rotator cuff and trying to decrease the amount of symptoms they have there, you have to decrease the inflammation. Trying to avoid open chain exercises are important. Closed chain are better and isometric are better early on as you're slowly trying to strengthen the rotator cuff. But again, that needs to come after the focus on the scapula and sort of the general shoulder girdle stabilizers. Then comes decreasing the inflammation, then comes strengthening the rotator cuff. 
after that rotator cuff has been strengthened and their shoulder is nice and strong, you can focus on the other musculature with ultimately a gradual return to sport with more sport-specific rehab exercises as part of the PT regimen. I think one of the things that becomes detrimental is many times when you send people to physical therapy, the first thing they try and do is start you know, working on their range of motion. And of course, a lot of these MDI patients will actually already have great range of motion. And so as the focus is on increasing range of motion, again, that dyskinesis that they have inherently will lead to rotator cuff symptoms due to impingement. And then again, they're going to fall into a painful cycle where it hurts them when they participate in physical therapy. They're going to do it less, their shoulder will get weaker, and so on and so forth. So the important thing is to, again, start off with stabilizing the scapula first and foremost. And whether that requires bracing and taping, you do it if need be. After the scapula is doing well and the general shoulder girdle is stable and strong, then work on decreasing inflammation primarily throughout the rotator cuff with trying to prevent open chain exercises and exercises that really tax the cuff too much. And then once that inflammation is down, slowly work on isometric exercises to strengthen the rotator cuff. And then once the shoulder is there, a gradual return to sport therapy that um, is more sport specific. Do you think PT has a role working with athletes on their throwing mechanics? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've seen a lot of places that I interviewed at and that I've trained that have video that you're able to film patients in their entire throwing cycle. And many times you're able to pick up things that one would not even think of in terms of their lower chain not being symmetric and coordinated. And so you say, well, you're taxing your shoulder more because you're actually, your abductors are weak. And I can see you falling into a little bit of valgus as you start with your single leg raise. And so there's all these small little things that you can pick up if you were to video patients and then look at their entire kinetic chain, especially in a throwing athlete. And so, yes, that, that certainly is important. I want to emphasize what Dr. Bitzer had said, six months. This is not an overnight fix. It's not a quick fix. It takes a long time. And getting someone who is so interested in playing and throwing so much to take that kind of downtime and do it is, is a real challenge, especially if they have a parent that's pushing. So anyways, moving forward, Dr. Bitzer, let's say they've committed to their PT program. They've really worked hard. They've complied with everything. They still have pain. Surgery. What are the surgical procedures for MDI? And can you tell us a little bit about your algorithms for post-op and rehab? There are many patients that actually get through the entire cycle of physical therapy and are responsible, have been meticulous, have done a great job. You've spoken to the therapist one-on-one. -on -one. They've shown you how they've worked with the patient. It all looks good. And still, they're unable to get over the hump. I think that when there is an MRI finding that uh, shows a small lesion, plus they've done all the therapy, that certainly gives you a little bit more courage when going into the OR because you know specifically what you need to address when you get in there. And so if a patient has truly done everything and they cannot get over the hump, then certainly there is a role for surgery. I, I know that there are some folks out there that really just will not operate on, on MDI patients. And yes, non-operative therapy is the staple for treatment. But again, if they have done everything appropriately and they, they can't get better, then certainly there is operative uh, options uh, that are beneficial in several studies. The main one that is done at this point, and it was done historically more open 
And now it's being, of course, done more arthroscopically, as we've talked about, as arthroscopic training has improved over time, uh, is an inferior capsular shift. And so what this really does is it the goal that it's trying to accomplish is decreasing the effective joint space of the glenohumeral joint. So that inferior capsule laxity that I discussed before, it's trying to bring up the inferior glenohumeral ligament, both anteriorly and posteriorly, to again, decrease that inferior pouch so that the humeral head is not sagging inferiorly, which is one of the typical directions that the humeral head wants to go in the MDI. Again, in addition to getting rid of that inferior capsule, you're also trying to tighten up the anterior aspect of the IGHL and the posterior and working your way up as well so that you're basically just centering the humerus better on the glenoid in addition to decreasing the capsular volume. And so that's a, a capsular shift or a capsular application, which again, there's several studies that show phenomenal results, 85% or better. And these have been shown by Buddy Savoie, Snyder, Guardsman, Cooper. And the first inferior capsular shift was really um, discussed by Near. And again, that was done in an open fashion and more people are doing it arthroscopically. In addition to the inferior capsular shift, there are other options, especially when you get into the operating room or even on the MRI, you can see this sometimes, you see a very uh, robust interval, rotator cuff interval. And so closing this interval will actually tighten up the structures that live in it, which is a superior glenohumeral ligament, as well as the coracohumeral ligament and the capsule itself. And that will actually help decrease that pathologic external rotation with the arm and adduction that goes too far. And so that, that is another thing that is commonly done. Finally, if a soft tissue procedure is not enough, and this is something that is typically done more in Europe, then sometimes bony block procedures can be performed either anteriorly or posteriorly in patients with MDI, depending on which direction they're more symptomatic during what activities. Anteriorly, of course, there are options of bony block procedure, whether it's a distal tibia allograft, or a coracoid transfer or latter-jay. And then posteriorly, typically it would be a, a, some form of allograft, again, in a bony block procedure. Again, those tend to be a little bit more extreme and certainly are more indicative when there is a bone loss, but are being done in Europe a little bit more than here in the US where we typically favor more all soft tissue procedures, whether they're open or arthroscopically performed. When I give patients injections, sometimes they say, how do you know where to put it? And I tell them, well, it's talent. <laughs> so my question to you is, other than talent, how do you know if you're getting it too tight or not tight enough? I think with the common techniques that are being performed now, it's a little bit different than some of the things we were doing before, like thermal ablation or the putty plat or some things that really did over-constrain the glenohumeral joint and actually lead to chondral damage moving forward and early arthritis. Now it's much more of an anatomic reconstruction and getting a lot of these too tight is, is actually pretty difficult, especially when there's an element in some of these patients, which is not uncommon of things like EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, in fact, sometimes uh, there, there are folks that actually are proponents of using allograft tissue to reconstruct some of the capsule and, and ligaments in order to prevent them from just stretching out again. So getting these too tight is almost hard to do, to be honest. The one thing to worry about, of course, is when you take certain bites, um, especially inferiorly as you're trying to decrease the volume of that capsule, is not snagging the axillary nerve, of course. And so this is better done in sort of taking smaller bites and reapproximating things slowly around sort of the clock face of the glenoid 
versus taking a large, aggressive, inferior bite where you might actually catch it. But getting it too tight is almost hard in these patients, to be honest. And, and I, I haven't seen many patients where they're not able to regain their motion back after having the uh, capsular shift in the setting of having actual MDI. Now, of course, if you did this on a patient that didn't have MDI, didn't have generalized laxity and didn't have instability in multiple planes, you know, you do this on someone with just a unidirectional instability pattern, then certainly you could tighten them too much. Thanks for that. I, I, that was just a question that popped in my mind while we were talking, but please continue your post-op and rehab, your algorithms and restrictions and when the athletes can get back to throwing. Post-op rehab might be just as frustrating for a lot of these patients as the physical therapy as well, only because, again, given the complexity of the condition, a lot of the post-op rehab goes fairly slow compared to some other general orthopedic procedures. And even when compared with just, you know, performing a all soft tissue bank cart uh, repair arthroscopically and not actually shifting the whole capsule, taking care of any labral tears, et cetera, when addressing uh, patients with MDI. So typically patients are going to be in a, a brace, typically a gunslinger brace for at least six weeks, which they can come out for showers, but otherwise they're in it all the time just to make sure that they are following the, um, the restrictions on range of motion. Patients are healing well at the six-week mark after being in the brace for that long. Then they can begin the scapular stabilization exercises and importantly, just passive motion. So this is a therapist slowly helping them with passive motion. They're not doing anything actively. Again, you don't want them firing their rotator cuff. You want to keep the inflammation there down. You just want to slowly start stretching things out a little bit and responsibly with a therapist guiding them. Again, the key to this is before the motion, before really getting everything down is the scapular stabilization. And again, this is where taping, bracing, certain garments that you can even find online that basically retract your scapula can be helpful for patients. Now, if they're progressing well at that six-week mark with their passive motion and everything's healing well at about eight weeks, they can start with active motion. But again, have to be paranoid, have to be focused on the scapula. If your scapula is positioned well and doing okay, then go ahead and rock and roll and keep going with the active motion. If it's not, then again, go back a little bit, slow things down and work on the scapula, work on the passive motion, work your way up. Now, that's at eight weeks. At three months, if everything is stable, scapula is good, positioned appropriately, and their motion is regained, this is now the time to work on some rotator cuff strengthening through isometric exercises. So again, similar to the pathway of non-operative treatment with physical therapy in terms of what to focus on first, once that checkbox is checked, move on to step two. If step two is completed, move on to step three. If not, go back to step one and keep focusing on that. It's the same idea. And many times in some of these patients, actually, some people advocate that surgery is just a way to take someone out of a spiraling cycle that's going in the wrong direction, resetting the clock, and then having them work physical therapy. And it's really the physical therapy that's doing everything, not necessarily the surgery. The surgery was just a good excuse, so to speak, to take the patient out of sport and then have them actually rehab appropriately. That was just a little bit of a side note. And then finally, let's assume everything is going well. From four months to seven months is an integrated rehab, sport-specific exercises, and this is the annoying part for many patients, especially if they're throwers, is that the return of sport for an MDI patient that has this, uh, you know, has, you know, any type of uh, labral lesion. And again, uh, 
this pathology to their capsule and their glenohumeral ligaments is that the return to sport is really looking more at the nine to 12 month mark uh, versus some other patients with different pathology that get back a little bit sooner. So it's important to discuss with them that their shoulder condition is a little bit different than someone with tubs, somebody with a rotator cuff tear, somebody with something else, because a lot of them will be frustrated and say, and compare themselves and say, well, why can't I go back yet? And so you have to tell them and really counsel them that this is a little bit trickier and more nuanced than just the average instability patient. For sure. Six months of rehab and surgery and nine to 12 months. And yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of work, a lot of counseling with a patient. Developing good rapport with the patient and their parents is really fundamental to taking care of these patients because I think if you ask anybody that takes care of shoulder instability, MDI patients, especially a thrower, are probably the most difficult patient to, uh, to manage expectation-wise, surgically, post-op. There's a lot of fine, nuanced details to pay attention to. And again, having a good uh, relationship and good rapport with your patient is just critical. Absolutely. And physical therapy as well. Doctor, we spent a lot of time talking about MDI. Great information for our listeners. Are there any online resources or recommended further reading on MDI and the treatments uh, that you could share with us? Obviously, a lot of textbooks that are available on shoulder instability. Uh, Matthew Proventure has a few uh, good books on that, as well as eToy. And, and there's, you know, again, those um, more simple uh, things to look at and that are straightforward and nice summaries are websites from different practices, like even Ortho Carolina has uh, some multidirectional instability information on their website. There's also shoulderelbow.org. That's all together as one word that is helpful for instability in the shoulder. And again, MDI. ViewMedi is uh, a good resource for videos on, uh, on this topic. It shows videos on the surgical treatment as well as just PowerPoint presentations from some of the thought leaders that sort of discuss uh, MDI. And then there's also open access journals that are available that will be a little bit more complex in some of the topics and, and some of the, the words that they use, but I think can still be helpful and beneficial for folks that are wanting to dig a little bit deeper in, in this topic. And really all you need to do for this is type into Google, you know, multidirectional instability and NCBI and you'll be able to find uh, something that's open access. And, you know, it's an article, it's a review article that discusses MDI. And then finally, you know, there's obviously YouTube and a few other platforms that have general information on there, which are helpful. You just have to sometimes evaluate it with caution just to make sure that it's appropriate material. Well, Dr. Bitzer, thanks for your time today. I appreciate all your information on FAI last week and MDI the next couple of weeks. Cool. Well, thanks for having me again. It's been great uh, chatting with you about MDI. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.